When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in Chinese Studies. Today, un- uncharacteristically, I am joined not only by the author of our book, Internationalist Aesthetics, uh, who is Edward Tyerman, uh, professor of Slavic Studies, uh, Languages and Literatures, actually, excuse me, at the University of California and Berkeley, but also Ed Pulford joining us from Manchester. He is a co-host on the channel, and we will be talking to Edward today together. Uh, before we begin, I would just like to introduce Edward a little bit more fully. So, um, Edward teaches at Berkeley 20th and 21st century Chinese-Russian literature, of course, early Soviet culture, which is what his book is about, but also late Soviet and post-Soviet literature and film. Um, He is interested broadly in not only Soviet cultures, but also the cultural connections and exchanges between Russia and China, um, Russian and Soviet Orientalisms, and theories and experiences of post-socialism politics and aesthetics, and finally, subjectivity and self-narration, which are all topics that we will discuss um, in this book, his first, I believe, uh, monograph, uh, Internationalist Aesthetics, Imagining China in Early Soviet Culture. Um, So welcome, Edward and Ed. Uh, uh, I'm looking forward very much to our conversation today. And so I will take the task of asking the first question, which will be for Edward, of course. Um, Edward, can you tell us a little bit about your academic lineage, um, you know, not only how you got into the field, but who are your mentors, who are your interlocutors, and how does your academic project really emerge out of that experience? Uh, Thanks, Julia, and thank you both for agreeing to be part of this uh, wonderful um, interview today. Um, So in in terms of what led me to the book, I studied Russian as an undergraduate, so I began really in in Slavic studies. And the interest in relating Russia to China is something that came along a little bit later. So it was actually while I was taking some time out from academia and working in publishing that I began researching 
developments in contemporary China, became very interested in things like urbanization that was going on in the 2000s in China. And that led me to an interest in studying Chinese. But at that point, I had no real sense of what would link Russia and China together, apart from the fact that they were next to each other and they'd both been uh, socialist for a while. It was when I applied to a PhD at Columbia, which is where, my, where I did my PhD. Um, while I was applying, I applied for Russian and comparative literature so I could continue working on Chinese. And one of the people I encountered there was Lydia Liu, um, who was the person who first started talking to me about this intensive engagement with Russian and Soviet culture in, in, in China in the 20th century, which was something that actually, I think in general, most Slavists aren't particularly aware of. Um, and so it was working at Columbia with Lydia alongside people in the Slavic department there, uh, Boris Kasparov and Catherine Pomnishi in particular, that really led me to this topic. Um, and taking particularly a, a seminar with Lydia Leo on, uh, on Rushun um, was the first time that I learned about this significant number of Russian writers and filmmakers who were traveling to China in the 1920s. So Boris Pilniak, who I talk about in the book, was the first kind of figure I actually encountered. I wrote a short paper about him for that seminar about Pilniak's encounter in Shanghai uh, with Tian Han and Jiang Guangzhou and this failed film that they tried to make called Go to the People. Um, and then I became interested in this, that a fairly prominent early Soviet writer had um, written this text about traveling to China in the 1920s that really placed China at the center of this question of where the revolution will lead and what its global implications might be. And I started looking around for other things from that period, because I mean, the early Soviet period is one that had always deeply interested me, and just started finding more and more. Um, so I learned about Tretyukov, uh, who again is a figure who has been sort of somewhat in the shadow of his more famous colleagues from the Soviet avant-garde. So, he was a close collaborator with people like Vladimir Mayakovsky, Sergei Eisenstein, um, uh, Sevlov Meyerhold. Uh, he was very close friends with Bertolt Brecht and is often seen as one of the people that tra transferred this concept of estrangement from the Russian formalists over to, to Brecht. Um, I also started discovering things like this film Shanghai Documents uh, from 1928, which was actually just recommended to me by someone who I bumped into at a conference. Um, I learned about the Red Poppy uh, from, from Catherine Pomnishi, who was interested in ballet. And then I sort of started putting all this stuff together and realizing that there was this body of material about China in the 20s in Soviet culture um, that no one had really systematically brought together. And also that it was, what also struck me about it was that it was a body of material that ranged quite widely across um, these different genres and media that are themselves kind of a point of contestation at this moment in the 20s, where there is this ongoing debate about what the forms of a post-revolutionary culture should be. Um, should it retain the cultural forms of the past? Should it create entirely new forms um, adequate to a, a workers and peasants uh, state, right? Um, all of these questions that are quite vibrantly being debated by different literary and cultural groups in the 20s. Uh, this material on China seemed to range across all those different um, sort of cultural zones of production. So that's really what, the, what led me to this interest in, in writing the book and exploring what were the cultural resonances of this pretty intensive political engagement in China that's going on in the 1920s, which again, I think is something that for a lot of Slavists uh, is not 
has been slightly buried by the general um, historical narrative of that period that the field tends to put forward. Wonderful. So if I can ask a follow-up, actually, that um, builds precisely off of where you left off, um, perhaps a definition of internationalist aesthetics. Uh, one of the things that I found most uh, fascinating about your book is the way that you have devoted each chapter to a different medium to work through how that medium uh builds knowledge through bodily experience, right? We're really interested in sensory affects, in the sensorium, and a material relationship with the world um, that is supposed to remold, remake the new Soviet man. Um, and, and it's very important for that Soviet man, uh, according to the, the, the folks that you, you're writing about, um, to understand, to, to make China sensible, right, through these media. So if you could tell us a little bit about that structure, that methodology, and how it relates to these central questions of internationalist aesthetics. Sure, absolutely. So, I mean, as I said, the the thing that really struck me, first of all, on uncovering this material was how, how broadly it ranged across these different, um, different genres of literary writing and also different media. So when I came to put the book together, I divided it into four chapters. Um, each of which deal with a different medium. So the first chapter is about, uh, it's really about the writer as as a mediator, um, focusing largely on travel writing, reportage, but I also discuss in that first chapter Tretyakov's use of a kind of documentary poetry. Um, the second chapter is about theatre, uh, the third chapter is about cinema, and the fourth chapter is about um, a very idiosyncratic text, uh, which Tretyakov called a bio-interview, which is a, a collaborative autobiography that he wrote with one of his students uh, from Beijing. So Sega Tretyakov, I should probably say, is the, the central figure in this book. Um, and he is an avant-garde writer who spent 18 months teaching Russian in, in Beijing in 1924-25 and used that experience to become both, I would say, the most prominent Soviet journalist on China in this period. He published an enormous range of over 100 articles in the Soviet press about contemporary China. Um, and also to write a variety of different kind of experimental texts um, that are trying to convey contemporary China to his audience, trying to con connect his audience to, to China's contemporary reality. So Tretyakov's there at this time, exactly at this moment when the Communist International is trying to orchestrate an alliance between the Chinese nationalists and the Chinese communists, when there are lots of Soviet advisors in the country, led by Mikhail Baradin, um, who are trying to cement this alliance. And Tretyakov, in a sense, is part of the cultural wing of that Comintern project, I would say. And Beijing University, where he taught in the, in, the in the Russian department, was an important point of contact uh, for uh, Chinese students and uh, pro-Soviet Russian intellectuals. And a lot of the students who studied there went on to study, for example, in various institutions in Moscow. So there is this large political project going on. And the way I understand the, the kind of media side of that project is really, it's this attempt to explore the possibilities of the various genres and media that are circulating and, and indeed in contestation in the 1920s in Soviet culture, explore their possibilities for creating this sense of internationalist connection um, to the Chinese revolution um, to give the Soviet public a sense of China as a commensurable and coeval uh, revolutionary space. 
and overcome various forms of exoticization um, that had shaped just sort of the common understanding of, of China in the Soviet cultural imagination. So it's the ability of media to, and, and of different media to shape this sense of connection um, and to do so in different ways um, that really drove, drives the, the structure of the book uh, being the way that it does. Great. Well, maybe I'll jump in now to uh, follow up on that, uh, Edward, because that's a yeah great uh, point at which to look into the first chapter, I think, which documents um, and uh, describes some of the actual in-person, I guess, I guess experiences of both Tretyakov, who you've mentioned, and Boris Pilnyak, uh, the other figure you mentioned right at the start there. Um, because, I guess, despite the role of media and mediation here, there is also physical uh, displacement. There is also the two figures going physically to China during the 1920s. So could you say a little bit more about their first-hand experiences of China um, and the projects that they felt themselves to be involved in to transform knowledge of China, how the two related to one another and what their mediating role was? Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Ed. Um, so I do, I understand kind of mediation in quite a broad sense in the book. Um, and it includes... Uh, the, the the role that actual media play um, in sort of shaping these relationships, but it also includes, for example, the roles of individuals as as mediators, right, um, of both Tretyakov, Pinyak, and their Chinese interlocutors as playing a mediating function, and also the role of something like translation as a, as an act of mediation, right. So there's different forms of mediation at, at play in the book, um, but all of them directed in some way at this idea of establishing China's kind of co-presence in the same revolutionary modernity, I would say, as, as Russia. So in terms of, in terms of Tretikov and Pilnyak themselves, uh, Tretikov, as I mentioned, was in Beijing as, uh, primarily as a teacher. He was there to teach Russian. Um, and he was also playing the role of a journalist. Um, he traveled there with his wife and, and, and their daughter. Um, they lived at the Soviet embassy in Beijing uh, and stayed there for about 18 months. So he was there, he was there during, he was in Beijing for the the death of uh, Sun Yat-sen in March, 1925. Uh, He was there um, for the um, shooting of protesters in Shanghai in in May, 1925, that led to the May 30th movement and it's large scale process of uh, demonstrations, protests, and strikes across China uh, in 1925 that's often seen as a kind of flashpoint for um, the growth of a more explicitly anti-imperialist sentiment in the nationalist revolution of the mid-1920s. So Tretikov is really documenting China at this at this very pivotal moment uh, in China's own, own history in the 20s, right, when the possibility that a, a revolutionary situation is developing um, seems, quite, um, seems quite feasible. And obviously, at the time he's there, this alliance between the Kuomintang and the Chinese Communist Party is still active. Uh, so he tends to, to paint the Kuomintang as, as a positive, uh, progressive force. I mean, he's writing about Sun Yat-sen, for example, is, is full of praise for, for Spoon as, as, the, as the father of the Chinese Revolution, which is how he was uh, generally presented in, in Soviet media at that time. Um, and most in, in, in Tretyakov's sketches, you tend to have a fairly optimistic vision of China progressing along, I would say, a kind of recognizable 
revolutionary path. So one of the things that is, is quite striking in his writing is the way that, firstly, his, his interest in overcoming exoticization, um, which is, runs all the way through um, his texts about China, uh, and is directed particularly at contemporary write, European writers who were quite popular in, in, in Russia at the time, people like Pierre Loti, uh, Claude Ferrer, uh, Gustave Mirbeau, uh, who'd all written um, sort of fairly, uh, I would say, exotic and titillating texts about China. I mean, Mirabeau's book is called is The Torture Garden, right, which is all about traveling to China as going to this space of sort of exotic, exquisite, refined performances of pain on the human body. Um, Tretyakov is trying to sort of overcome that othering of China in this kind of writing by... Um, fixing China's reality as not simply um, operating under its own logics, but operating under a logic that can also be compared to the development of revolution in, in Russia itself. So one of the things that he's interested in those sketches is um, a sort of early version of what would later get called uneven and combined development, right? The kind of idea that comes out of Trotsky um, that in some senses the Russian revolution happening in Russia indicates that um, societies in which uh, capitalist development has taken place uh, only unevenly and coexists um, with, for example, a large uh, rural agrarian population and significant remnants of an older form of, uh, of social and, and economic relations. That actually, in some way, there's something about that uneven dynamic that is more amenable to a revolutionary situation. That's an idea that develops in in the case of Russia, but people like Tretyakov are apply, applying it to China, right? And saying that it's precisely these contradictions that you can see on the streets of Beijing between um, sort of more traditional uh, forms of life and uh, sort of violently imposed uh, semi-colonial modernity. It's precisely that that actually lends China the possibility of, of a revolutionary dynamic. Well, maybe, maybe I can just jump in on that because on one hand it's... Uh an operation, uh, as you described, to bring China into a recognizable temporal frame and a recognizable uh, revolutionary kind of teleology, if you like. But on the other hand, that's a an act being done by a Soviet person, a person from the center of revolution, from the first, you know, kind of the leader, the vanguard, or however else you might think about it. So how did that kind of question about the, the, the authoritative voice of the Soviet figure there, whether Tretyakov or Pilnyak, or the kind of general sense of the Soviet revolutionary model as sort of paradigmatic balance with the project that you've also mentioned to bring China, to bring knowledge of China, a anti-imperialist and more straightforward knowledge of China into the picture. You describe uh, some length, uh, various points in the book, actually, but in particular here in the beginning, Tretyakov as a kind of ethnographer, someone whose writing was almost overburdened, it seems, at times with just loads of facts, loads of or loads of um, material stuff about China that may have been kind of, uh, you know, secondary to the actual purpose of his political project. So how, how does this sort of role of the Soviet voice as the actor to making this temporal and, and sort of uh, political operation interact with the liberationist and sort of uh, emancipatory aspects of the project? Mm. Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, and actually, that, in many ways, that's the the tension that I try and situate at the very heart of the book, because I think in a way that's a tension that was central to the project of 
Comintern internationalism itself. So on the one hand, the Third Communist International, which was founded by the Bolsheviks in 1919, committed itself, particularly after 1920, increasingly towards sponsoring um, anti-imperial, uh, anti-colonial revolutions in Asia, right? Um, and the idea behind that coming out of Lenin's imperialism is that if you detach the colonies from the imperial metropoles, and this will do significant economic damage to those metropoles and their working classes will rise up. So um, that's the strategy that's behind supporting a kind of nationalist party somewhere like China, right? Um, and within that template, you have, I think, I mean, how I describe it in the book is that it's a tension between uh, centrifugal and centripetal forces. So on the one hand, you have this, this impetus towards decentering Europe and creating a sense of political solidarity and common cause um, with people in Asian countries um, with whom under the, the, the logic of imperialism, you would be encouraged to see a kind of difference. But on the other hand, you do have this centripetal force, which is the insistence on the Comintern as a leader of world revolution and the Comintern itself being a body that is largely controlled and directed uh, by the Soviet Union and the the, the Soviet Communist Party. And the way I try to, to deal with this tension in the book is by saying that it's actually this very combination of centrifugal and centripetal forces that shapes the project of internationalist aesthetics itself. So in, with Tretyakov, absolutely, there's this combination of a desire to overcome the exotic by fixing as many facts about China as possible, right? Um, and Tretyakov is most, most famous within Slavic and Soviet studies because he was the figurehead for a movement which later got called in the later 1920s the literature of fact um, or the fact factography was sometimes what they called it right and it was premised on the idea that a revolutionary literature should dispense with fiction altogether that fiction was a kind of fetishized illusion um, and that a revolutionary literature should simply fixate facts and give a factual account of the transformation of uh, the Soviet Union and this true state of the world, because that was the knowledge that the proletariat needed in order to overcome false consciousness and have a true sense of their place in, in history. So that's actually a method I, I argue that Tretyakov really develops during his work in China. And he develops it with this idea of overcoming this kind of exotic fetishization of China that's taken place in European culture. At the same time, factography was always... Um, it was always a tendentious form of, of, of writing, right? It was always directed towards uh, and saw itself as participating in a particular political goal. Um, so it's not a neutral fixation of facts at any time, right? There's always beneath uh, or organizing these facts is some understanding of what of how the historical process is developing. And that's, that's definitely the case with Tretyakov's writing about China, right? So he's always organizing these facts to give a kind of narrative about how China is moving out of um, out of some, something that I guess in common term language would be called feudal tradition, right? Um, which again is in, in imposing a certain kind of category on China's past and China's history. Uh, out of feudal tradition um, into something like semi-colonial capitalism, uh, and then onwards towards uh, a socialist future. Um, what's what's striking about this other figure that I talk about in the first book, Boris Pilnyak, um, who was a different kind of Soviet writer, um, very much a modernist, but less of a factographer in the sense that um, Pilnyak was more committed to, and in fact famous for 
an account of the revolution as a kind of chaotic, um, elemental, disorienting uh, activity that may have been more to do with the, with the revenge of a primeval past uh, than it was with kind of um, a revolution driven by Marxist class categories. So when Pilniak goes to China in 1926, um, the text that he writes, uh, Chinese Story, is sort of using the same language as Tretyakov about international revolution and the feudal past and the revolutionary future. Um, but the text itself is a completely mangled mess um, and one in which that, that progression doesn't seem in any way smooth or clear, right? Um, and instead he focuses on his own kind of subjective experience being one of, of extreme disorientation, discomfort, um, and alienation. Um, so with Pilniak, I think you see how this, this general project of internationalist aesthetics operates under the same parameters, but it gets, it gets interpreted by different agents in very different ways. Um, and whereas I think Tretyakov sees it as his responsibility as a writer in China um, to offer his Soviet readers this clear sense of China's progression into its um, revolutionary future. Uh, for Pilniak, this idea of, of Chinese sort of similarity actually becomes something destabilizing, essentially, because in many ways he's committed to a more, um, a more explicitly, I would say, sort of even Russian nationalist understanding of what the revolution is. Um, and he was also there for much less time. So that's another important thing, I think, to mention is that Pilniak was very much a, a visitor. He, he, was, he traveled through from Harbin to Beijing and down to Shanghai um, in, I think, a, maybe a couple a month and then stayed in Shanghai for another month. Um, so it's a different dynamic of, of presence, uh, but also a very different understanding of what the, what the writer's role is in, order, in terms of organizing their own sense experiences into something, something coherent that can actually convey knowledge. One thing that strikes me as we talk is that really your book is not so much a book about Chinese studies as a book that explains the ri arising of Chinese studies in, in a different context than we're used to experiencing. Right. Um, although, of course, and we will eventually get to this, but you do have um, very active and agency, uh, agential Chinese characters that emerge um, and that are in, in close conversation with these Russian intellectuals as they uh, struggle to translate China. So perhaps with that, we can transition to a discussion of your second chapter, which is really about translations that occur on the stage and ways in which some of these translations are perhaps missed by their intended audiences. So, um, of course, I, I'm, I'm talking here about the play Roar China, which is, of course, the work of uh, Tretyakov, and a different type of a theatrical performance, a Soviet ballet called The Red Poppy. So I wonder if you could introduce to us these two pieces through your the mechanics of translation, um, particularly the Mandarin and Russian pigeon that is used in, in the first, um, and this missed translation, not mistranslation, but a translation that the Soviets uh, wanted to impose upon a play that it, it failed ultimately to change the meaning, the signification of the red poppy for Chinese audiences. Yeah, thanks. Um, so so the, the second chapter on theater is one where I, I try to get at this question of how a theatrical production can seek to, to mediate between two cultural contexts, right? Um, so in both cases, both the play War China and the ballet The Red Poppy were high-profile, significant 
productions uh, on the Moscow stage in the mid 1920s. Um, Raw China debuted in 1926 um, at the Meyerhold Theatre, uh, Seattle and being probably the most prominent uh, experimental um, director of the Soviet period. Um, the script was by Tritukov, and it was based on um, an incident that happened in, in the town of Wanxian in Sichuan uh, in 1923, when an American businessman called Edwin Hawley was killed during an altercation um, with some Chinese boatmen over trade uh, along the Yangtze River. And as a result, um, the captain of a British battleship that was moored nearby, called the Cockchafer, um, insisted that uh, two of the Chinese boatmen should be executed. Um, otherwise, the British ship would, would bombard the city. Uh, and after some negotiations, the two of the Chinese boatmen were indeed executed. The Red Poppy, which I think is pretty clear was really inspired by the success of Royal China in 1926, was staged a year later in 1927. And it was staged um, at the Bolshoi Theater for the 10-year anniversary of uh, the Russian Revolution. Um, so this is also a, a symbol of the significance, really, of China for, um, for, for early Soviet culture, that it, the, it's the year 1927, the 10-year anniversary of the Russian Revolution, at which Soviet engagement with China really comes to a head. Uh, both in terms of these sort of high-profile productions like the Red Poppy, but also in terms of the fact that the alliance they're sponsoring between the nationalists and the communists falls apart in 1927, right? Um, with the nationalists massacring um, communists in, in Shanghai in April 1927. Um, so this is this is really the moment at which the kind of the review of what has happened in 10 years of the revolution is taking place, and the Bolshoi Ballet decides to put on a, a, a ballet set in contemporary China, um, which tells the story of um, a Chinese dancer named Tao Hua, um, who uh, dances in an unnamed Chinese port, which is pretty clearly modeled on Shanghai, um, in, in sort of in tea houses for the pleasure of, of, of Europeans. And then this, a Soviet ship sails into the port and um, the Soviet sailors intervene in a dispute between uh, Chinese dock workers and their, um, uh, their overseers. This then leads to a, a plot by the British to murder the Soviet captain, uh, but the Chinese dancer Tao Hua falls in love with him and essentially through a series of uh, complicated intrigues ends up um, saving his life. So they're very different productions, right? Um, even though it's pretty clear from the records of the Bolshoi that um, they were looking at the, the success of Royal China when they decided to think up a play, a ballet set in, set in contemporary China. Um, and the way I try to understand the difference between them is really by focusing on their relationship to um, this foreign context that they're trying to bring onto uh, the Soviet stage. And that's where I try to think about this in terms of in terms of translation. So with thinking about theater as a medium, to go back to the medium question, you have, I would say, with the, the, the theater as a theatrical medium, you have a, a, an overwhelming emphasis on the experience of bodily presence, right? And, and bodily co-presence. It's the co-presence of the actors and the audience um, that creates the distinctive dynamic of, of theatrical performance and the ability to respond not just to 
uh, not just to words uh, and not even just to images, but to, to the movements of those bodies themselves, um, which obviously in the case of ballet takes on a, a heightened significance. With these kinds of plays that are trying to be in some sense internationalist, you have an added complex relationship between that presence and the absence of the actual context that they're claiming to represent on stage. And it's the relationship between those two things that I, really, I argue that these two plays deal with in fundamentally different ways. So Tretikov's Raw China, which is trying very hard to insist that it's based on an actual historical incident. So again, Tretikov's insistence on sort of documentary uh, methods uh, does all sorts of things to try and affirm its connection to an authentic Chinese context. So um, they imported costumes from China. Uh, they imported gramophone records of Beijing opera to play during the play. They imported Chinese instruments. Um, there are various moments in the, in the script where you see a note suggesting this is when the hu qin would sound uh, to, to give a particular kind of Chinese musical flavor to a scene that was being performed. Um, so there's this interest in sort of authentic cultural materials, I guess you could say. Um, and at the same time, the European side of the play is being performed in a highly kind of artificial, theatricalized, stylized manner of these kind of grotesque, exaggerated caricatures uh, on a fairly obviously artificial looking battleship set. Um, so a lot of critics found this very disruptive. They thought that the tension between a kind of sort of naturalist ethnographic aesthetic and a highly sort of stylized theatrical um, aesthetic um, was a, a sort of dissonance in the play, um, particularly since those are the two kind of schools of, um, of theater that in the early Soviet period are kind of arguing with each other about which one should be the dominant form for, for Soviet culture. And in a sense, the kind of Stanislavski option or the Meyerhold option. Um, but I argue that actually that's, that dynamic is there specifically to ac accentuate the fact that this is both a theatrical production and one that is seeking to affirm that it has some kind of connection to an actual sort of historical reality that takes place uh, somewhere else, right, in China, in Sichuan. And that dynamic is also, I, I argue, reflected in the way the play itself deals with the question of language. Um, so you have multiple different forms of language in the text. It's basically a play in Russian, um, but uh, the Chinese characters do sometimes speak to the European characters in Chinese. Uh, among themselves, they speak Russian, um, but when they're interacting with the European characters, they sometimes speak Chinese and they often speak um, this pidgin language that Julia mentioned, Chinese pidgin Russian, which was uh, which was a historical pidgin that developed along the Russo-Chinese border um, for trade purposes, probably from around the 17th century, um, in places like Kiachta, um, but also particularly in, in Manchuria. Um, so in Harbin, for example, you would have heard Chinese pidgin Russian spoken very widely. Um, in Vladivostok, uh, where there was a significant Chinese population at this time, and where Tretyakov actually spent a good chunk of the Russian Civil War in the early 1920s, um, Chinese pidgin Russian would also have been heard on the streets. Um, so what really interests me about the use of, of, of the pidgin, which, uh, again, was misrecognized by a lot of people who just thought it was kind of mangled Russian, um, is there's an investment there in reflecting, in some sense, the actual sort of historical reality of these of these trading contacts between uh, Europeans and, Chi and Chinese traders um, within China itself. So the the Chinese pidgin Russian is essentially translating, I suppose, Chinese pidgin English, which is more likely would have been used in the encounters in Sichuan. 
Um, but it's a language that is, is not only historically authentic, but one that actually arises out of the dynamics that the play is trying to explore, right? Which is the, the sort of political and economic uh, hierarchies involved in, in European uh, and Chinese trade contexts. So it's that interest in using an actual kind of historical contact language um, in order to give voice to these relations which in Tretyakov's play are presented as highly unequal, um, that I think is, is really distinctive about Tretyakov's approach to translation in that play and really speaks to his, to his factographic, factographic impulses, right? Um, with the red poppy, essentially, most of that stuff is gone. So um, the, the sort of famous anecdote about the red poppy, which I talk about in the chapter, is that uh, when Mao Zedong came to Moscow in 1949-1950 uh, to make a pact with Stalin, um, he was invited to go and see uh, the red poppy. Uh, he didn't go, uh, but he sent uh, Chen Boda, uh, one of his associates, instead. And, and Chen uh, essentially protested vigorously against the production, not only because um, it had sort of rendered its, some of its Chinese characters somewhat kind of grotesque and exaggeratedly racialized, um, but also because of this central symbol, the red poppy, which in the ballet is supposed to be a symbol of um, internationalist uh, revolutionary solidarity. It's a, a flower that the dancer gives to the Soviet naval captain in the first act as a token of her love and affection. And then in the third act, he sort of magnanimously returns it, uh, but now as a symbol of their sort of common um, sort of brotherly struggle for revolution. Um, for, for Chen, watching this in 1950, the red poppy was too obviously a symbol of opium um, to play this role in the ballet, right? Uh, and more immediately conjured up the, um, the histories of uh, British opium trade in China, the opium wars that were fought over that trade in the 19th century, and so forth. So what really interests me in that section of the chapter is this question of how could this group from the Bolshoi theater who are trying to make an anti-imperialist ballet in 1927, how could they have been, as it seems to us, so blind to the symbolism of that, of that poppy? Um, and I essentially, you know, it took me a while to kind of think about this because I thought, did, did they just not know about the Opium Wars? Were they, uh, but that doesn't seem very feasible because it was one of the things that a lot of this kind of writing in the 20s, including by Tretyakov, is constantly talking about because the British were the major kind of villains of the peace for the Soviets. Um, did they simply not care because um, the poppy in Russian cultural context actually has sort of fairly positive, um, optimistic associations with springtime and um, freshly plowed fields and so forth. Um, and I ended up thinking that really it's actually this investment on the Soviet side and their ability to, to re-signify these kinds of symbols, um, to say that the poppy was associated with opium and vice and imperialism, but through the actions of this play, uh, its meaning is transformed uh, into one of international solidarity and the red flower as, as the red banner and so forth. Um, so there again, you see this kind of interest in claiming a certain kind of Soviet authority over, over symbols and, and over their, their sort of shifting meanings. Uh, but in this case, one that the Chinese side very actively ultimately rejected. So if I can jump in then, um, I think one of the interesting things about this production of the Red Puppy um, in relation to this negative connotation of opium and um, ensnarement in, in various types of inappropriate desires is actually the the proliferation of of consumer objects that you write um, that that emerges out of this production, right? Um, so I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about 
that, especially as how it relates to your, um, and indeed the the Soviet um, intellectuals' task of sort of demystifying and de-exotifying and decommercializing China, right? Um, and how maybe you can include a little bit of discussion of this opium dream that plays an important role in this, this these first stagings and then is is written out essentially um, as the play evolves into the later Soviet period. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's that's a great question. Um, and the red poppy is very much. A, a prime example of this, a larger dynamic that actually happens in most of the chapters, which is that I juxtapose Tretyakov's work on China, which is sort of, in a way, the sort of canonical example of this idea of internationalist aesthetics, with these other examples, which often aren't quite doing the same thing and often are doing sort of diametrically opposed things. So the Red Poppy, in a way, is the most prominent example of what I would call a, a kind of Soviet Orientalism or a sort of re-exoticizing of China. Um, but just with sort of revolutionary flavoring uh, thrown in, right? Um, so the plot itself is a kind of reworking of, of something like Madame Butterfly um, or all the if people that know Russian literature, all these kind of prisoner of the Caucasus narratives where a kind of, you know, in, in this colonial encounter, um, the local woman sacrifices herself to save the life um, of, of the white man. Um, and it was enormously popular. Um, so it's it became canonized as the first Soviet ballet, meaning essentially the first successful ballet on a recognizably Soviet theme. Um, and that was something that was innovative about it, that ballets traditionally in the past had not been set in the present, right? They're usually set in some kind of mythical or historical past. And so the Red Poppy is really central to making this claim that ballet can survive into the Soviet period and can... Um, still have relevance for um, for a, a, the art of a revolutionary society. But it does so by essentially reactivating all of these kind of um, Orientalist tropes that were very central to 19th century ballet. Um, so the idea of the opium dream, for example, uh, shows up in several ballets of the 19th century, uh, La Bayadere, uh, The Pharaoh's Daughter. Um, all of these ballets are, are set in these kind of exotic Oriental locations and involve sort of opium dreams as moments of kind of transformations into alternate realities, um, which it gives you a chance to give sort of heightened um, sort of fantastical spectacle. In The Red Poppy, the second act is largely taken up with an opium dream that takes place when Tao Hua um, is traumatized by an attack on her, her beloved's life. And so she smokes opium and goes into a sort of long sort of... Um, allegorical dream sequence where first she's chased by various representatives of um, of gods and demons um, representing tradition and religion and so forth. And then she enters into a magical garden full of dancing flowers, including dancing red poppies, which danced across the stage. And um, at, the, at the end of this dream, uh, the captain appears in the distance and all the flowers kind of droop apart from the red poppies, which turn their heads upwards and gaze towards the future. So they're already there being kind of repositioned as, as revolutionary agents at that moment. Um, so And part of the excess, success of the Red Poppy depended, I think, on this kind of you know, intoxication, essentially, um, by, by ballet form itself, right? Um, even the very question of whether you can entirely restrict something like ballet to a clear, narratable ideological message is a difficult one, given that the form itself does not have words, right? That message had to be conveyed in a kind of synopsis of the, of the, of the narrative in, in the, in the um, what do you call them? Uh, the, the program? 
program. Yeah, exactly, the program. Um, but it was very easy to watch it on stage and just enjoy the spectacle of watching Dancing Flowers, right? Um, and that intoxication, in a way, pl played into the, the future life of the ballet. Not only did it remain very popular and was constantly restaged um, through the 1920s into the 30s and then sort of re sort of done in a new, in a new production in 1949. Um, but there were all sorts of spin-offs, like there was, uh, there was Red Poppy um, Sweets Confectionery, um, Red Poppy Perfume, uh, which was actually, which was very popular um, in the Soviet, right into the kind of late Soviet period. And I know people who remember using it in like the 1970s. Um, there was Red Poppy Lipstick, uh, which was, as Julian mentioned, was advertised with these kind of um, sort of very, very, very glamorous um, uh, images of um, sort of slightly East Asian looking women putting on uh, this bright red lipstick. Um, so, Absolutely. The Red Poppy is a good example of how Soviet culture found a way to reincorporate all of that, um, all, the, all of that exoticized um, commodification of China, right, uh, as a kind of, um, as some kind of uh, exotic delicacy um, and, and repackage it for a Soviet audience by melding it with this narrative about revolutionary solidarity. Uh Great. Uh, I feel like we have more and more scholarship that exposes these uh, latent desires that we see emerging in the visual culture of various socialist countries um, after they have ostensibly already been properly revolutionized. Um, but if we can turn then to your next chapter and move from the stage to the screen, uh, you write about a selection of films that all fall into different genres but that ultimately staged, once again, this various efforts, right, at representing China or representing the role of the Soviets in China. So if you could talk a little bit about those films and how their genres participate in the building of this knowledge. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the, the third chapter, which is about cinema, um, is really connect, asking this question of how um, this fairly new and rising medium of, of cinema, which is one of the ones that it, is very strongly emphasized in early Soviet culture as um, there's the famous phrase by Lenin, cinema is for us the most important of all the arts, right? Um, as a possible medium for, for knowledge about the world. And what is particularly interesting to me about the, the cinematic aspect of this larger project uh, of internationalist aesthetics is that it's really with cinema where you see the biggest push for um, producing films that not only could be shown to a Soviet audience, but also have the potential to be re-exported to China, right? Um, so this, is, this already happens um, with, with Raw China, the play, um, which was um, actually staged all over the world. Uh, it was staged in Western Europe, it was staged in North America, it was staged in Japan, then it was staged several times in China in the 1930s. Um, so that play did travel very successfully in a way that the Red Poppy, for example, did not. Um, but when you look at the conversations going on around making films about China in the 1920s, there's this constant emphasis on the idea of, well, we need to think about films that not only tell our Soviet audience about China, but that can also be, um, be re-exported to China to give a kind of um, 
to, to introduce Chinese spectators to their own reality as sort of mediated through the Soviet gaze, right? Um, so, for example, the first um, film that I talk about in that chapter is a, is a cartoon, um, uh, an animated film called uh, China on Fire, Kitai Vagnie, uh, which is one of, the, one of the earliest Chinese, uh, one of the earliest Soviet animations, um, done with a sort of cutout doll animation technique. Um, and there, uh, throughout the film, you have um, moments where uh, text is given in both, in both, um, in both Russian and Chinese, um, with an interest in uh, exporting that um, potentially towards a Chinese audience. And Tretyakov himself uh, wrote a trilogy of film scripts um, about China, which he was planning to film with Sergei Eisenstein. Sadly, they never got made, which would have been um, would have been wonderful for, the, for my project and for for world cinema in general. But um, the plan to shoot them on location in China in 1926 was eventually scuppered because of uh, changes in the political situation in Beijing that meant that the Soviets couldn't get um, couldn't get a credit line uh, to actually fund the project on the ground. Um, so the two films that did get made in China are the, the ones that I spent quite a good chunk of that chapter talking about, and they're both documentary films. Um, one is The Great Flight from 1925, which is about an aviation expedition from Moscow to Beijing. Um, again, this kind of pioneering expedition, it was the first time that anyone had crossed the Gobi Desert by air. Um, and the film crew went with them and, and filmed both the flight and extended kind of um, ethnographic sequences in Beijing and Shanghai. Uh, and Guangzhou, actually. Um, and then the second film is this film, Shanghai Document, from 1928, uh, which was actually filmed in Shanghai in the summer of 1927, uh, so after the um, Chiang Kai-shek's uh, coup against the, the communists in April of that year, uh, but incorporates um, newsreel footage um, from, um, from both the um, nationalist armies entering Shanghai and the, the massacres that ensued. So it is, this is a chapter that, as you, as you said, Julia, kind of takes in various different film genres. Um, and I try to understand that really as part of this, this ongoing process of, of negotiation over what exactly uh, the best film genre would be for this, this, this question of producing accurate knowledge about a foreign space. Um, the, the animated film, for example, is... Um, is very is very explicitly made in a kind of agitational vein that uses these kind of exaggeratedly grotesque images of um, sort of villainous imperialists who are transformed into literal monsters, right? With sort of huge fangs dripping kind of blood and enormous eyes that pop out on their on their stalks. Um, whereas the their, their Chinese victims are painted are drawn in kind of uh, sort of realist human representational form. Um, so that gives you an opportunity to give this kind of exaggerated kind of caricature uh, dynamic that can really impact people with some sense of the villainy of the, um, of, of the imperialists. Um, with, with, the with Tretyakov and the documentaries, it's an interesting tension because, of course, as I've said, Tretyakov is famous for being someone who advocated for documentary writing. When he came to write film scripts, he actually didn't insist that films should be documentaries. Uh, in fact, the film scripts that he wrote are kind of fictional scripts based on documented events. Um, 
So some, somewhat in the vein of Eisenstein's Battleship Batumpian, right, which is based on an actual historical event, but sort of exact, alter certain details in order to heighten this, the sense of the heroism of the, of the sailors as a, as a collective. Um, Tretyakov's scripts are all kind of trying to thread together historical events that happened in China in the mid-1920s. Um, so the trilogy climaxes, for example, with uh, the strikes in Guangzhou in 1925 and the boycott of, of Hong Kong, um, that, that in Tretyakov's script lead to a kind of revolutionary confrontation, military confrontation between uh, the Kuomintang and the British, which never actually quite happened. Um, so he's playing there with historical reality, but still feels the need for a film script that will link them together in a way that can sort of maximize their sort of emotional impact on the reader, right? A reader on, on, on the audience. Um, so quite closely, I think, following the ideas in that sense of Eisenstein um, for how film affect needs to really sort of drive its spectator towards certain political conclusions um, rather than someone like Vertov who is insisting that actually those conclusions can be reached by simply recording reality and then combining it in uh, particular, um, particularly effective montage sequences. Um, the films that did get made of the two um, documentaries, Shanghai Document is really in that later camp. So it's this interest in using cinema, um, documentary cinema in a way that can actually uh, create um, political conclusions, create changes in consciousness, um, simply by juxtaposing recorded chunks of reality. So that's a film that is really... Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great piece of filmmaking, I think. It's really invested in a very systematic way in using this idea of sort of juxtaposition through montage um, to create this sense of Shanghai as a fundamentally divided city, uh, one in which there are sort of two opposing classes, um, the Chinese working class and then a bourgeoisie that is kind of made up of, of foreigners and, and wealthy Chinese. Um, and systematically juxtaposing the life of Chinese workers in factories with the life of the bourgeoisie react, relaxing at the racetrack, or the life of people unloading boats with the life of people relaxing on their yachts, you know, um, to give this sense that this, this is a contradiction that they cannot hold, and that in some sense inevitably leads to this revolutionary uprising with which the film climaxes. Um, so there I think you do have this, this interest in in showing how cinema can do something that other mediums can't, right? By both um, both giving that direct sense of immediacy that Tretyakov always wanted from his writing um, through the kind of the, the sort of indexical imprinting of, of reality onto, uh, onto, a, a, onto a, a strip of film, um, but also using the the capacities of, of montage and of editing to um, to allow film to actually shape uh, the consciousness of, of its viewers in some way. I think you kind of reproduce that effect as well uh, in a compound way by inclusion of uh, cut scenes or uh, you know clippings from the films in in the book itself. And I would say, in terms of uh, a transformation of consciousness, the um, the uh, cartoon images from that. Um, Kitai uh, Wagner, China, what is it, a flame on fire uh, that you mentioned? I, I mean, that's that really, tr they do transport you to a totally different kind of uh, paradigm that the, those graphic, yeah, grotesque, 
bird-like evil things with stuff shooting out of their eyes and yeah the kind of uh, way that capitalism is is depicted there um yeah, maybe something that we sh- we would think about in our own age is not so far from the truth but it certainly takes you to a different uh, a different sort of uh, aesthetic environment so uh, i think that's um yeah that was a really striking part of the the book uh, for me personally um but i'll just move us on uh since you know kind of conscious of time to i guess the final fact oriented uh section of the book or the the chapter 4 that looks at this um i guess uh, quintessential work of factography, the bio-interview, uh, this work uh, by Tritiakov. Um, there's a lot to say about it and, uh, you know, kind of deeper exploration uh, reveals an awful lot of nuances around some of the topics of, of language and translation, mediation and so on uh, that you've already discussed. But I just wonder what in particular does this bio-interview, this interaction between Tritiakov and uh, one of the students he met whilst teaching in Beijing, what does this say about um, something you call internationalist subjectivity, the kind of emergence of a, a sort of personhood, if you like, befitting this new uh, global you know, socialist project? Mm, that's a great question. Um, and I think I should say as a sort of preface to this that the, you know, the project of internationalist subjectivity was always, was always a project, um, and I think it always remains, you know, um, ambiguous to what degree it's a project that was was genuinely achieved, and I mean, obviously, a lot of people have written about how, particularly in the nineteen thirties, Stalinist culture sort of reverts in many ways to a certain kind of sort of Russian nationalistic narrative about the past in order to inculcate a sense of Soviet identity. But so, but I do see this nonetheless as a kind of a kind of counter project that Tretyakov and others are engaged in the twenties of trying to find ways that a Soviet subject can be can conceive of itself as um, primarily internationalist in formation, right? Even as I don't ever claim really that that became the sort of hegemonic form of, of subjecthood uh, in the Soviet Union. Uh, and indeed, you know, for later periods, the idea of internationalism increasingly became a certain, seen as a kind of cynical joke that basically covered up the reality of, um, of Soviet state, um, state realpolitik. Um, but with that in mind, I do think the the final chapter of this bio interview is one where this question of the internationalist subject really, really comes to the fore, um, and really returns us to this question of authority that I mentioned um, at the beginning of this conversation. Um, so Tretyakov wrote this book in collaboration with um, Gao Shihua, who was one of his students from Beijing, um, who later travelled to Moscow uh, to study at the um, Communist University for the Workers of China, um, which was founded specifically to, cha- to train Chinese students, both nationalists and communists, um, in 1925, I think. Um, and so Gao Shihua was from Sichuan. Um, uh, he was born into uh, the family of, uh, of a scholar who later studied in Tokyo and then became uh, a member of the Tongmen Kuei and participated in the 1911 revolution. Um, he then traveled to Beijing University um, as a young man uh, to study and started studying Russian there, where he, Tejikov was one of his teachers, along with other members of the Russian uh, department there. Um, he uh, was someone who became more radically interested in politics after he participated in the, uh, the May 4th movement in 1919. 
Um, he went on to study in Moscow, um, and while he's there, he works with Klitschkov over a period of six months, um, and they met regularly um, to sort of discuss Gao's life and to collectively compile this large, um, sort of three hundred plus page um, account of, of a young Chinese man's life, uh, around which is woven a kind of um, a sort of hist- a sort of history of China uh, over the first. Um, three decades of the of the twentieth century, essentially. Um, so, what really interests me about about the, this book, which was renamed Deng Xiaohua, because after Gao goes back to China in nineteen twenty seven, he goes back after the April massacre in Shanghai. Um, Tretikov changed the name because he wanted to protect his identity in case he got into trouble in nationalist China for having been in Moscow. Um, what really interests me about Deng Xiaohua is the way that. Tretikov constantly foregrounds um, the processes by which the book itself was written, right? Um, so there's this kind of, in, in the terms that Russian formalists use, a laying bare of the device uh, by which he's constantly drawing attention to the fact that this is, this is a text that came out of this dialogical interview encounter between two people. That's an encounter which was conducted in imperfect Russian. So Tretikov's Chinese probably wasn't good enough to speak to Gao in, in Chinese, but he knew a little bit. Um, but And Gao's Russian was was pretty strong, but Tretikov suggests not always perfect. For example, he describes him at certain points trying to draw things um, in order to convey what he's talking about when he can't think of the Russian word or having to go out of the room and sort of ask his friends what it is and then come back and explain it to Tretikov. We've all been there. Um, well, exactly. Right, right, right. There's this very interesting emphasis on the kind of imperfect um, communication process of this highly mediated encounter, right? Um, and yet, the book that you read is basically written in smooth literary Russian. Um, so the book itself kind of highlights the fact that this text you're reading is not simply a transparent window onto reality, right? It is, in fact, something that's been produced through this highly mediated encounter and thus should be taken as, in a sense, kind of contingent and and one potential version of a variety of different narratives that could be told about this person's life and about the larger history in which they were embedded. And Tretikov keeps coming back to this throughout the book. So he constantly has little footnotes that kind of tell you um, this fact is not actually true, as I learned later on, or Gal told me this, but I don't necessarily believe him. Um, or, you know, I've, I've checked with other people and this seems to be true, um, all of which kind of jolt you out of reading the, the narrative, which at times is kind of a, quite an exciting sort of adventure story. Like it's all the stuff about Gao's father fleeing from um, from soldiers around the time of the 1911 revolution and getting imprisoned and then escaping and hiding in a marsh and all this. Um, and then at the end of the book, he comes back to um, the frame and basically has a concluding chapter. He says, well, Deng Xiaohua left and I don't know what happened to him. I haven't had any contact with him. And then this other student um, called Ding Yongping, um, who's also one of his student, Tretikov students from Beijing, showed up and they have a conversation in which he basically says, well, a lot of what Gao told you, I think, may not actually be true. I think he may have presented himself as more of a revolutionary than he actually was uh, because he thought that was the kind of book he wanted to write. Um, and so at the end of the book, he kind of throws open again this whole question of the authority dynamic involved in this encounter, right, which seems to be so strongly weighted towards Tretyakov, who was Gao's teacher, who was the one speaking in Russian, who's the one ultimately writing the text. Um, But at the end, sort of opens up this whole area where it kind of undermines itself by saying, well, actually, 
maybe the person I was interviewing kind of came to understand a certain model of this revolutionary internationalist subject that you wanted me to perform, and that's the subjectivity that they ended up performing. Um, so that idea that this account of the subject himself could actually be something that is uh, performed and structured according to certain kinds of norms um, that Gao would have learned through his process of being involved in the Soviet education system, essentially, which was in, engaged precisely in the construction of these kinds of subjects. Um, that's the moment in Dongshuhua that I think is really interesting and that actually throws open this question of the authority involved in this kind of internationalist knowledge production um, as one that you know, casts its shadow over Chaitukov's work as a whole. Right, and that leads us on to some of your reflections, I think, in the epilogue about the lasting legacies of uh, this project as a whole and some of the way that these things did or did not live on. Because as you mentioned, you've, you've mentioned the massacre there or the kind of Kuomintang uh, kind of crackdown on, on, on communists, which mm -hmm. put an end to a lot of the uh, flirtation uh, or involvement of, of Soviet um, thinkers and, and cultural figures such as you've described with China. Um, and then you reflect a little, yeah, on how things unfolded in the 30s and 40s and ask uh, whether or not, I guess, this whole project to do something new, create an internationalist aesthetics, create a, an internationalist subjectivity was a failure um, or not. So I wonder, uh, as a kind of at least final question from me, whether you see the relative failure or otherwise of or the unfinished nature of this project as something distinctive about the interaction here between uh, the Soviet Union and China, or whether mm. it simply went the same way as almost everything else did from this early kind of flirtation with a real sort of open window, kind of internationalist looseness that may characterize the 20s in contrast to the 30s and the Stalinist period by which time everything became so sort of locked down and stolid and, you know, tax and taxonomized. Um, is there something different here that sort of sets it apart from the broader face of lots of cultural stuff under Stalin? Mm, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, I think, I think in a broad sense, it's true that that is the, the larger trend, right? That this, the particular Soviet-China relationship participates in, that there is a more kind of horizontalizing openness about the 20s, which gives way to a, a kind of more rigid um, sort of hierarchical sense of the relationship between the Soviet Union and the world in the 30s. Um, this is something that um, the architecture historian Vladimir Papeni talks about the movement from the horizontal 1920s to the vertical 1930s, right? Um, I think, and I think you know, the, the Sino-Soviet relationship is very much part of that larger field of, of the Soviet Union's relationship to the world. I do think that the there's always been a kind of particular sort of weight attached to the the, the Sino-Soviet or the Russia-China relationship in particular, um, partly because of um, China's size, partly because of its contiguity, right? That's always rendered it a kind of um, ambivalent space in some ways for Russian culture, one that is both coded as culturally distant and also understood as geographically adjacent, um, which is which makes it very different, for example, to um, the European relationship to China, that, that sort of tension between adjacency and, and a sense of distance um, is, is quite distinct in, in the Russian case. Um, and obviously, China's strategic importance was always particularly high, right? So into the, even into the 1930s, um, China as a central aspect of um, 
reporting on the world in Soviet newspapers and journals, for example, remains in a really prominent position, particularly actually after the Japanese invasion, because Japan is seen as the major rival and enemy in, in the East, right? Um, so in the, in the epilogue, for example, I talk about how a lot of contemporary, contemporary but at that time, Chinese literature was translated into Russian in the 30s and published in journals like international literature, alongside a lot of information about um, about Japanese encroachment into Manchuria, the Japanese invasion of China from 1936 onwards, uh, and the forms of resistance that were taking place there. Um, so I think there are ways in which that kind of, that geostrategic importance um, remains, keeps China at the center of a, of a kind of internationalist imagination, and at the center of this question about how the Soviet Union does relate to uh, particularly um, the larger space of Eurasia. Um, and obviously that comes back in in a major way in the 1950s when you have this kind of golden age of Sino-Soviet alliance, um, which, which I actually sort of end with a brief piece on at the end of the epilogue, which in some senses returns us to the dynamics of the 1920s, but in other ways is a very different moment because here you have a relationship between two states uh, which are now ruled by communist parties, right? Um, the Comintern no longer exists, so that sort of body of internationalist revolutionary parties is really replaced by these kind of state-to-state -state relationships that are taking place, you know, with with Eastern Europe and with um, Mongolia and, and North Korea, as well as with as well as with China, um, and also the the more avant-garde impulses that motivated people like Tretyakov, um, who are very invested in some of these avant-garde ideas about uh, transforming consciousness through these kind of these radically unsettling effects that appeal to the human sensorium to disrupt them and then reshape them in a new way, right? Um, a lot of that has disappeared by the 50s, partly because a lot of the people involved in the book are actually purged in the 1930s. So Tretyakov is executed in 1937, Boris Pilniak is executed in 1938, uh, Meyerhold also dies in the purges. Um, the one person that does get through is this figure, Vladimir Schneiderov, who... Um, who directed the Great Flight, the aviation expedition film, and then comes back in the 50s to make a film in Xinjiang about um, a projected railway that was supposed to travel through Xinjiang, but uh, in a sort of joint Sino-Soviet project that never got made. Um, so I think, you know, I think the question, the question remains, but what's, what's interesting to me actually about these different iterations of moments of Sino-Soviet alliance, uh, I know, Ed, this is something that you sort of worked on as well, um, which of which we see another one in the present, right, is that each moment actually seems to operate on a strategic forgetting of the previous moment. Um, so so when, when you have the Sino-Soviet alliance in the 1950s, you know, there's some mention of um, the fact that Schneiderov had been there in the 20s, for example. Um, but certainly at the beginning of that process, Tretyakov had yet to be rehabilitated. Uh, and his work certainly was not widely known because it, he'd basically been forgotten since um, since his execution in the 1930s. Um, so that kind of clear sense of a link to what had been happening in the 20s was quite limited, right? And in a sense, the Sino-Soviet relationship is being reinvented uh, under the conditions of the Stalin Mao Pact and what comes afterwards. Um, and my sense is that in the sort of post-1980s situation, which we, in which we're sort of still existing today, um, that's that's the case again, right? So in some sense, these relationships can't really gesture back, for example, to the Sino-Soviet alliance in the 50s, uh, not least because the, the power dynamic between the two sides has actually radically changed. 
And whereas in the 50s, it was this sort of Stalinist older brother um, and, the, and, the, and the Chinese sort of pupil learning, learning about the socialist future. Um, increasingly in the, in the post-socialist period, you have uh, a situation where, where China is becoming the sort of economically uh, more powerful senior partner uh, in, the, in that relationship. Um, so in some sense, I think there is, it's important for us to be aware of this longer history in order to try to understand what the relationship is driven by in the present. Uh, but it's also striking the degree to which um, the present iteration of it has to kind of cast aside a lot of that heritage in order to really operate. So if, if I might offer my final question then on that note, um, if we've, we've sort of constructed this as these sequels that <laughs> seem to uh, occur on a palimpsest, if I could ask about the sequel of your own uh, academic mm. project, what are you working now? And um, if there is a connection, what is it? And if not, what inspires your new project? Oh, thanks. That's a great question. So at the moment, I'm working on, I would say, two things that I hope may become one thing, but they may remain two things. <laughs> um, and they're both sort of connected to the two periods that I just mentioned. So um, so I, the last thing I mentioned in the book is actually this film uh, that I just talked about by Vladimir Schneiderov um, about another expedition film but through Xinjiang this time and along the route of this planned railway from Lanzhou to, to Urumqi and then to Almaty in Kazakhstan, um, which was planned for the 1950s but didn't get made and actually only got finished in the 1990s. And that's, it was also, it was a um, collaborative film, so it was made in collaboration between a Chinese and a Soviet film studio and it had a Chinese and Soviet director, Chinese and Soviet cameraman and so forth. Um, I've actually, so I've already published a piece on this, but I'm really interested in this question of cinematic collaborations that took place between the two countries in the 50s, um, of which there are a few. Um, there's also the, the film uh, Przewalski, which was made in the early 1950s about um, uh, a Russian imperial explorer of the 19th century uh, who traveled through, uh, through Xinjiang, and large chunks of that were filmed uh, in Beijing. Um, there's a film uh, called Wind from the East uh, from 1958, directed by Yefim Jigan, um, which is a kind of socialist realist um, film set in Manchuria about the, the, re the reconstruction of a factory um, and also a co-production. So one of the things I'm hoping to do more is to kind of investigate those, those co-produced films for their kind of, not just the films themselves, but the sort of dynamics of co-production that shaped them. Um, because I think it's a very interesting example of how this relationship was shaped both by this sort of dynamic of tutelage, right, whereby the Soviet side was seen as sort of imparting its knowledge of how to make, um, how to make at that time sort of up-to-date, state-of-the-art uh, socialist cinema. Um, but, and there was, you know, a clear investment in learning from the Soviet Union in terms of, um, Chinese cinema at that time, but also all these tensions that emerge around the relationship over a slight kind of Chinese discomfort with being placed in this position of, um, of the pupil, uh, and particularly in these films that take place in what are essentially kind of contested border spaces historically between the two states, right? So um, Schneider's film is in, taking place in Xinjiang, uh, which had long been a point of contestation between Russia and China. And in the 1930s was, in, in many senses, a kind of Soviet protectorate. Um, and Wind from the East is taking place in, in Manchuria, where obviously there are kind of longstanding 
tensions and contestations over um, Chinese and Russian sovereignty as well. Um, so that's one project that I'm working on. And then the other is I'm sort of interested in looking at um, the post-socialist period and ways in which um, the, the Russia-China relationship has been figured in um, in popular culture in, in both countries. Uh, and I mean popular culture in a fairly broad sense from kind of um, from novels to things like TV and cinema. Um, so at the moment I'm writing, for example, trying to write something about the Russian writer Vladimir Sarokin, um, who written, uh, writes a series of sort of speculative fiction texts in the 2000s about a future Russia that has sort of regressed into a kind of neo-medieval state. Um, but one of the striking things about his neo-medieval Russia is that it's also increasingly under the economic influence of China to the extent that it is traversed by this road called the, the Guangzhou-Paris Road, which is a sort of enormous trunk road that uh, sort of ferries goods from from China to Europe through Russian space. Um, are, you, so, are you sure it's not called the Belt and Road Road? Well, exactly. So, <laughs> so he starts writing these in the mid-2000s, actually, before the Belt and Road Initiative is announced. Um, but it's very clearly playing on the same idea, right, of a, of a kind of vast Eurasian transit corridor, a kind of new Silk Road in which Russia would just be a sort of transit space. Um, so I'm interested in ways in which the sort of the post-Soviet imagining of Russia's place in the world um, gets shaped by this sense of, of China's rise and China's very different experience of post-socialism. Um, and I think Sadokin is an interesting example of that. Um, and and on, the, on the Chinese side, I'm interested in looking at ways in which sort of Russia figures in in contemporary Chinese culture, um, for example, there's this recent um, this recent film called um, uh, "How I How I Became Russian." Right, I don't know if people are familiar with this, but it's actually based on originally a Russian TV series, um, which was about an American who comes to Russia and has to experience all sorts of things like drinking vodka and wrestling with bears and learning how to be Russian. Uh, and then it was very popular in China, and then there was a kind of Chinese-Russian co-production in 2019, which is about a Chinese guy who comes to Russia because he has a Russian fiance and has to deal with her um, sort of stereotypically Russian father. And again, lots of drinking vodka and um, bathing in ice, icy ponds and stuff like this. Um, <laughs> um, so I'm interested in this way that in some senses in, in contemporary Chinese culture, you see this kind of comic idea of Russia emerging, right, uh, as this sort of uh, eccentric and slightly wild uh, neighbor to the north, um, which in in some ways actually again sort of reconfigures the way that relationship was understood. For example, in the nineteen fifties, when when Russia was you know the Soviet Union is our future and so on and so forth. Well, I look forward to learning about that project um, when you're done with it. Although I I will get a sneak peek later this week. I, I'm watching a a paper that you'll be giving about Sorokin, to which I'm looking forward very much. Um, but that's all for us. Folks, we're finished. Thank you so much, Edward and Ed. Um, Ed for co-hosting and Edward for um, coming as a guest onto our podcast. Uh, have a wonderful rest of your day. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. Right. Thank you so much, both of you.